had one of those moments where you just feel exceptionally manly? Now, I don't know why the ladies got offended when I asked that. I guess because I, I, uh, I phrased it around the idea that, um, you know, in, in my years of youth ministry, 17 plus years, I've had lots of opportunities to go on mission trips. And for some reason, when I like get into a place where I'm putting up walls or pouring a foundation and I'm hammering in stuff and cutting things with a saw, it's just like my man card, my manness just goes, oh, 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 oh. you remember like home improvement, Tim, the tool, oh, oh, oh. you know, I drive in a nail and all of a sudden I feel like I'm like some construction expert, which I'm not, by the way. And if anybody knows I, I'm terrible with stuff in that, you know, those guys that have seen, seen me. Um, but for some reason, I just, I just feel more manly when I do those type of things. I, I remember it was like maybe four years ago, we were in Oklahoma City and my youth ministry, actually a lot of people in our church were working on a Habitat for Humanity home. And if you guys aren't familiar with Habitat for Humanity, they come into, you know, some of, not really impoverished, but some of the lower income neighborhoods and they build homes for families, um, at a very reduced rate and they have to put in a certain amount of hours, you know, themselves into their home and serving other homes. And so we were, we were, uh, we were putting up these walls. And, uh, if you get a group of guys together, working on something, we will find some way to make a competition out of it. Now, I think ladies might be the same way from time to time, you know, and, uh, and so we were, we were in this house, well, just a slab, and we're putting up these walls, and we, we're hammering stuff in, and all of a sudden, all the guys are like, let's do a competition, you know, see who can drive the nail in, you know, straight and perfect in the fewest amount of hits. And so here I am, you know, in my late 30s and I'm competing against a bunch of like 14 and 15 year olds. And for some reason that just made me feel really manly because, you know, we had those hammers. Now this was new to me. I didn't even know they made these until a few years ago where you can like put the nail on the end of the hammer. And so you don't even have to put your finger up there because I usually hit my thumb when I have to do that. And so you just take the hammer and you go whack into the board and the nail sticks. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And then you just go to town on it. And so these guys were doing it in like eight or nine or 10 hits and then I got kind of good and I started thinking I was like the man because I could get it done in like five. Now that's probably pretty pitiful to some of you guys who have construction experience or even ladies who have construction appearance that can beat me. Um, and, uh, and so I'm hammering this thing and as I'm hammering it, the more manly I feel until Rick comes over. And Rick is the foreman who works for Habitat for Humanity. And every single day, that's all he does is frame houses and put up roofs and, you know, hang sheetrock and put in electric, you know, all these different things. And he gets there and he goes, what are you guys doing? I'm like, we're having a competition. He's like, oh, well, can I play? And I was like, sure. I mean, who's going to beat five hits? I mean, five's awesome. And he takes the nail and he goes, whack. And it goes in like three quarters of the way with just like one swing in a perfect location, joining these two studs together. And then he takes the hammer and he goes, whack. And it's perfectly flush inside the board, driven deep. And he's like, did I win? And I was, everybody was just like thoroughly impressed. You know, we get ourselves in trouble, fellas, when we try to be manly, don't we? My buddy, um, Travis, he and his wife were at the lake. And, um, they had just spent the day out on the lake and they pulled the boat up to the dock and, um, you know, they were getting everything out and they were, the boat was still a little bit in the water and Connie was like, it's hot, I'm ready to get out, um, but I don't want to get wet. She's like, how am I supposed to get out of the boat without getting wet? And Travis said, jump. 
and I'll catch you. And she jumped. Now, I don't know who was more at fault, Travis for suggesting that Connie should jump or Connie for trusting Travis to catch her after being out on the lake all day. But when he said jump and she jumped, she went straight through his hands, went down onto her ankle and broke her ankle like in three places. Surgery, screws, the whole nine works. The whole nine yards. And he came to church. Both of them came to church like two weeks later after she was, you know, able to even stand up on crutches. And he said, this is what happens when you try to be manly. It's true. We're talking about a very manly man in the Old Testament. His name's David. The reason we call him a manly man is because he was the greatest warrior of all of Israel. He, when he was just a shepherd... He would defend his father's flocks. And the scripture says that he took out a bear and he took out a lion that was trying to attack his dad's sheep and flocks. We know the story of David and Goliath where he just says he looks at this giant of a man. And we know the scripture says that David was kind of small in stature. And he was just somewhere in his teenage years where he goes to battle against Goliath with just a sling and a few stones and he takes him down. And in all the manly gestures, you know, he takes out, he takes out Goliath's sword from his hands and cuts off his head and like holds it up to the people of, you know, the, the, the Philistines and they go running in terror because of this mighty warrior in a teenager body. I mean, he was like the man of all men. And then he was so successful, Saul just said, hey, you're never going to leave my side. And he was so successful as one of Saul's warriors that every single mission that Saul sent him on, he was victorious. Every single one. He was a manly man. But here's the thing about David, is not only did he have an outward strength, but he had an inward strength. And he was gentle when he needed to be. I put this in your notes. It's from St. Francis de Sales. It says, Nothing is so strong as gentleness and nothing so gentle as real strength. We're looking at a story of David where he showed an unbelievable amount of restraint and gentleness to someone who has been trying to kill him. And this is where we pick up this story this is, um, before we get into the text of 1 Samuel chapter 24, Saul is out to kill David. And the reason he's out to kill David is because he knows that David's been anointed to be the next king, and he's not okay with that. Because if David becomes the next king, that means he's not. And so there's a problem there. And there's also a problem in the sense that David's not his son, and so that means his lineage is no longer king of Israel. And so he's got a real issue with this idea. And for a while, he's kind of been behind the scenes, you know, with his warriors and with his, you know, people in command trying to take David out. And then he'll repent and like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. David, you're such a good guy. Will you forgive me? And then he'll try it again. And so he's had like three or four attempts at David's life. But now he's at this point, instead of doing it behind the scenes, he's doing it openly. And he's chased David into the desert and he's actively trying to kill him with his army because of, of the fact that David could soon be king. And this is where we find the story in 1 Samuel chapter 24. It says, At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went to a cave to relieve himself, to use the restroom. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Now's your opportunity. David's men whispered to him, Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with you as you wish. 
So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. The Lord knows I shouldn't have done that to my Lord, the king. And he he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the king, and attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. And so what happens here is, so he cuts off the robe while Saul's using the restroom and he starts feeling bad about that because he's kind of dishonored the person that God has put as the king of Israel at this time. And Saul goes out of the cave and the scripture says in this text that we're not going to read that David follows him out of the cave and confronts him. And he says, Saul, he says, I... um." First of all, I've done nothing to deserve this type of treatment, but I had the opportunity to kill you, and I didn't. And he holds up a piece of Saul's robe, and he says, I don't understand why you're trying to kill me. I mean, I'm a dog compared to you. You are the king. I've not done anything to deserve this type of treatment. I've always obeyed your orders. This is the Jared paraphrase that you find in these dot, dot, dots, right? And... um and he says, and he says, you know, who are you? I mean, you're king. I'm nobody. Please stop trying to kill me. I have shown you mercy. Will you show me mercy? And this is where the text picks back up. It says, when David had finished speaking, Saul called back, is that really you, my son David? Then he began to cry. His spirit broke. Saul's spirit broke. And he said to David, You're a better man than I am. For you've repaid me good for evil. Yes, you've been amazingly kind to me today. For when the Lord put me in in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for the kindness you have shown me today. And now I realize that you are surely going to be king and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. Now swear to me by the Lord that when that happens, you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. So David promises to Saul with an oath. He showed an inner strength. He showed an inner conviction. He showed a respect for authority. Inner strength. Do you have an inner strength? And is it demonstrated in the way that you live? And the bigger question I have today is, is how do you cultivate that? How do you cultivate an inner strength? I'm glad you asked. Here's just a few thoughts this morning on how to cultivate an inner strength. Here's here's a few. First one is this is if you want to cultivate an inner strength, is be courageous enough to step up and lead, but humble enough to know when to submit. Look, sometimes it's time to lead, and we desperately need leaders. We need leaders who will serve in our church. We need people to step up and say, you know, this is a place for me to serve and to use the gifts that God has given me and make a difference in this world and love our community. We need people to step up and be leaders. We need people to step up and be leaders in our homes. We need moms and dads, you know, to step up and to lead and to show their family what it means to be followers of Jesus and to demonstrate other families what it means to live with compassion and integrity and honor. We desperately need leaders in our workplaces. 
where our, our, our bosses and our coworkers feel encouraged and feel blessed and the people that we're serving in our place of employment feel honored and cared for and taken care of because of the type of reflection that we have of Christ in our life. We desperately need leaders in our school. Our schools look like dangerous places today in the sense that kids, it's, it's dangerous in the sense that the, the, the technology that we have at our fingers and the way kids treat each other and, and it, it, it's, 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 the things that we went through when we were in school pale in comparison to the type of pressure and, and the type of violence or the type of just negativity that's happening in our schools today. And we desperately need teenagers and leaders and teachers who will show that there is a better way to honor Jesus, to love people, to show how to respect. We need leaders. Here's the thing, though, is that sometimes leaders have a tendency to lead when they're not supposed to, when it's time to submit. David could have taken over at any time. He was anointed to be king. And and if you look at the scripture, God didn't say, hey, you know, don't ever... There was no, like... premise said of when he would become king. And so he could have he could have stepped in and said, hey, you know what? Saul's just a terrible leader. I'm tired of being chased. I'm tired of being my life being in danger. If he comes at me one more time, I'm taking this guy out and I'm going to become king because God's annoying. He could have done that, but he didn't. So there are times in our lives when we need to submit. When do we do that? Just if you have your notes, there's just a few blanks for you to fill in. Times when we need to submit is when we need when someone else has authority. Saul was king. David wasn't. And David was internally, thoroughly convinced that God would make him king when God was ready for him to be king. That it wasn't his place to orchestrate his kingship. He was convinced that it wasn't his job to take things, matters into his own hands so that he could become the next king. So he had to wait. Saul was a terrible leader. And not only was he a terrible leader, but he was a terrible person. I mean, this is the guy that tried to kill his own son when Jonathan stood up for David. The scripture says that he took out a spear and he threw it at, at Jonathan trying to pet him to the wall. I mean, this is not a good man. But David was convinced that it wasn't his time. And because King Saul was his king, he was placed in authority over David and David respected that. We have people that are placed in authority in our lives and we have to learn to submit to that position of authority. Even when we have a natural tendency to want to be a leader. Here's a second thought. We submit when someone else has the responsibility. Being a youth pastor at my last church, um, I was four miles or three miles away from the college that I graduated from with a degree in specialized ministry. And um, that's where I learned, you know, and took youth ministry classes. And, and so, you know, early on there as a youth pastor, I had a lot of interns and volunteers from the college that were going to be youth pastors one day. And it was just a really unique opportunity for me to invest in somebody who is going to be doing what I was doing for the kingdom of God. And it was a great honor. And, and whenever we would go on trips and, and have youth activities and especially missions trips or we'd take week-long convention, you know, trips to these conventions called the International Youth Convention. And uh, whenever we would do that, I would give my interns certain responsibilities on that trip. Now I would say, okay, on 
Wednesday, they would be there with me, my interns throughout the planning process, and they were learning how to do what I'm doing. We're mentoring each other, or I'm mentoring them. And, and I would say, okay, on Wednesday, we have like a four-hour time slot, and I'm putting you in charge. Or Wednesday night, we have a devotion, and, and you're going to lead that devotion for all the kids in the youth group, and, and you're in charge. And, and as a leader, whenever I would let college students lead, there was a part of me that was just like, ah, I could be doing so much better. This is driving me crazy. Just let me jump in there and rescue those kids. Let me jump in there and rescue that intern. Let me show them a better way to do it. And there was a couple times early on in my ministry that I did that. Until one of my interns came up to me and said, Jared, don't ever ask me to do something again. If you're going to ask me to do something and then rip it away from me whenever I run into a problem or whenever I kind of stumble a little bit, that really makes me feel bad and and I don't like it and I don't want you to ask me to do stuff anymore. And it checked my spirit. Because I realized that even though I had the authority, I had given them the responsibility. And if they had the responsibility, even though I was an authority over them, I needed to let them flourish and let them learn, even if it was a little bit rough, even if it wasn't exactly how I would do it, even if I could probably have done it better and made it a little bit smoother for everybody involved, I had to learn to step back for their own growth, to respect them because they have the responsibility. It's, it's a perfect example is families. You know, there are areas of our lives where we give our, our spouse positions of responsibility with us, men to women, women to men. And when we do that, we need to respect that. We need to say, you know what, I, instead of constantly butting, finance is a great, a great illustration. When we give someone the responsibility of putting a budget together and setting boundaries for our family, and then we have a check card, a debit card, and we continue to spend however we want to regardless of that budget that we've asked them to put together for our family's benefit, that's not really respecting the responsibility and the authority that you've given them. Does that make sense? And so we need to be humble enough to submit to people that we've given the responsibility to. Also when someone else has greater ability or wisdom. How many of you are willing to admit in this room that you may not always be the smartest person at the table? Anybody? Okay, there's a few of you that haven't raised your hands. And for those of you that didn't raise your hands, the person sitting next to you, would you be willing to admit to the, for the person sitting next to you that they're not always the smartest person at the table if they refuse to raise? Yeah. And the truth is, is I'm not either. I'm not the smartest person at the table. Now, there's a few things that I understand about ministry. There's a few things that I understand about leading a church. There's a few things that I understand in life that I have a level of knowledge to, but I don't always have the most. And when I have someone sitting around the table with me that has more wisdom on a subject than I do, it would be ridiculous for me to continue to do things my way instead of listening to their advice. But how many times do we do that? And we don't listen. And we butt our heads against the wall. We need to be willing to submit when someone else has a greater wisdom or understanding. Here's a second thought for you. Be wise enough to listen to others, but never let yourself be manipulated by them. What did David's men say to him? 
I'm sure they whispered it because Saul was right there in front of them. Kill him. This is your chance. God has delivered you into his hands. Take his life. You're sp- He's done wrong to you. He's tried to kill you. He, you're supposed to be king. You're anointed. We're following you. Take him out. But David didn't listen. Because there's only one opinion that counts. And that's God's. See, early on in ministry, I could be talked into doing just about anything. If you had enough teenagers surrounding me and they were going, Jerry, 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 I could convince to be, to do anything. I remember one summer we were at Camp Sharon, uh, which is a camp in northern Oklahoma, or northern Missouri at uh, Lake of the Ozarks and they have a floating dock with a high dive that's about 15 feet up in the air. Wouldn't you say, babe? In this camp, um, at the end of the week, um, each team would nominate a leader to, uh, for, for a contest called the belly flop. And whichever team leader had the best belly flop, that team got some points that would go towards their team to the end of the week. And I remember, for some reason, the kids, for some reason, the kids in the youth group wanted to cheer it. And they were chanting, cheer it, cheer it. And as they t- continued to chant my name and getting louder, I was just like, oh yeah, I can do this. This is amazing. Because <laughs> I wanted to be that guy that when they all chanted, they were like, oh, Jared's the best youth pastor in the world. Look at him go. And I said, woo. And I literally, when I hit that water, it was like, it was like I just like laid on it and like slowly sank in. Just that perfect shaka, slowly sink in. I was red from head to toe. Came out and I was like, I'm the man. I'm so awesome. Hurt. Kids could get me to do anything if they just started a cherry, a little bit louder, cherry, yeah, I'll jump off it. I grew out of that. After a, after a few years of youth ministry and blistered bellies and painful and ridiculous experiences, I said, you know what? I don't think I have to be that cool, or listen to that kid, or dot, dot, dot. Because ultimately what I figured out the more years I got in youth ministry is that my kids didn't need a youth pastor that they could convince to do ridiculous things by going, Jared, Jared. They needed someone else. They needed a leader. They need someone that would love them and honor them and respect them and show them what it means to love Jesus and to honor other people and to show respect. That is what they needed. See, uh, we need to be wise enough to listen to others, but never let ourselves be manipulated by them. Romans 2.29 says this, And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from who? What's the Scripture say? Say it together. God, not from people. A person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. Look, opinion of others are important. They are. Now, we, we like to say that other people's opinions don't matter, but if we're followers of Jesus, Jesus, other people's opinions do count. 
Because we're supposed to be reflecting Jesus into this world. Our light is supposed to be a light. To Jesus says, you're the light of the world, so go shine towards all men, revealing God's glory to this world. He says, you're supposed to be salt. Where they taste, in, in the message translation, where it says they taste godliness from us. I mean, our light, so their opinion of us matters because we're reflecting Jesus into this world. And if we're not reflecting right, then we're going to realize that by the opinion that other people have of us. So the, to a way, other people, people's opinions matter. But only one should direct the flow of our life, and that's God's. Their opinion matters. It's there for us to learn from and to think about, but it shouldn't direct us. God's opinions direct us. Be wise enough to listen to others, but never let yourself be manipulated. But here's a third thought. Embrace restraint as a friend who can save you from yourself. Then you go back to the story and what happens? Kill him. Kill him, David. Take him out. What does David do? He cuts his robe. He doesn't kill him. I mean, it's not much of a difference from going here to going here. I mean, he was right there. He could have taken Saul out, but he showed restraint. And the scripture goes on to say that not only did he show restraint towards himself, but he looked at his men and he said, hey, you're not going to harm this king. And he restrained his men from doing harm to Saul. Sometimes we are our own worst enemies. How many of you have found yourself that to be true? Sometimes we're our own worst enemies. 1992, there was a Golden Gloves boxer by the name of Daniel Caruso. And Daniel was going into a fight, and he was getting ready to fight, and he was actually in the ring um, facing off his, his, his opponent, and they were about to start the match when he, when he was getting himself all hyped up. And the way that he would get himself hyped up is he would take his boxing gloves and he would just punch himself in the face. He'd be like, pew, 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 pew. And he's like, nothing can hurt me. But he went a little bit far to the left with his right hand and hit himself square in the nose. During his warm-up, during his hype, he broke his own nose and started bleeding profusely. The referee had to call for... The, the bell hasn't even started, and they're calling for the doctor to check his nose, and they canceled the fight because he had knocked himself out by TKO. Gave the other boxer the victory. Took himself out. The hardest person to control is ourselves. Proverbs 13.3 says this, Those who control their tongue will have a long life. You'll know this last part to be true. Say it with me. Opening your mouth can ruin everything. Amen? Yep. You know, we need strength to show restraint when it comes to managing ourselves. We need to manage our emotions. Here's the thing about emotions. Amen, Bubba. Yeah. Emotions aren't right or wrong. They just are. Emotions are a natural response to the stimulus that happens in our life. They just are. But here's the thing about our emotions. Even though they just are, we can't allow them to take control of our lives. I've used this illustration before, getting on a roller coaster. Anybody like going on roller coasters? The reason we enjoy going on roller coasters is that thrill that it creates inside of us, that rush, 
I mean, if it didn't create those type of things, then why bother in the first place, you know? But we get on it for that feeling of, oh, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, this is amazing. Our face is plastered back, our hair is whipping behind it. Well, not my hair, but your hair is whipping behind you. You know, spits going everywhere. It's like this is, you're screaming at the top of your lungs, you're thinking, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. But here's the thing, do you ever die? Your emotions tell you that my life's in danger. Your emotions tell you that this could end in my death. Your emotions tell you I have a reason to be scared, but honestly, you don't. Emotions, they're not right or wrong. They just are. They just can't be trusted. They're terrible directors. They're great indicators, but they're terrible directors of what's happening in our lives. They indicate what we're going through, but they're terrible if they're directing the direction that we're headed in. So we need to manage our emotions. We need to manage our behaviors. The things that we do in that second of thought or anger or that flash, we got to control that. We need to learn to control our mouth, our sarcasm. Some of us have the gift of sarcasm. <laughs> and that, that gift of sarcasm can create pain in people's lives that we so desperately live, love. I was joking with Haley this week. I, sorry, I didn't get your approval for this. But I was talking about, if you look at my son, here, put, pick Bubba up real quick. If you look at Bubba, there is like no get second thought that this is my kid. He's got my forehead. He's got my nose. He's got my eyes. He's got my lips. He's got my chin. He's got my arms. He's got my rolly legs. This is a spitting image of his father, except, except his tongue. My tongue, this is as far as it goes. This kid can like lick his eyes with his tongue. <laughs> He's like one of those kids, you know, those kids in junior high that would like pick their nose with their tongue. Uh, that's as far as mine will go. Uh, that's it. Like this kid can lick the bottom of his chin and like get cereal off the bottom. And I said, you know, babe, he's got everything about me. Except that, and that's all you. And hopefully he can control his tongue better than she can control hers. Because she's got that little... I'm just kidding, you really don't. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. But I said, our kid, he's got everything with me except that one thing. And hopefully, hopefully he can control it. You know that quote... Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's the biggest lie in the world. Sticks and stones, I mean, that's just a bruise and a break, and those things heal. But those words that people speak into our lives, man, they can sometimes take a lifetime to fix and to heal. I mean, some of us, yeah, that's that tongue I was telling you about. Some of us have pain that have been inflicted upon us by word from our parents from childhood that we're still dealing with as adults. So don't say words will never hurt me. The words, they're so much more painful than sticks and stones. So we need to embrace a shrink who can save you from yourself as a friend. Sometimes that's what we need. Here's the last, well, the Proverbs 25, 28 says, a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. Anybody can take it over. 
Here's the last thought. Let's be strong enough to, enough to be gracious and forgiving. Saul finally admits, he comes to his senses and he says, look, David, you're going to be king. And you're going to be a better ruler than I ever was. And the people of Israel are going to flourish underneath your care. But please, just do me one solid. <laughs> just do me one favor. When you become king, don't wipe out my family. I mean, that's what kings should do, right? When a king takes over a kingdom from another king, they're supposed to wipe out that, that previous king's family so that their lineage can never come back and start a revolt, start a rebellion and say, hey, I'm supposed to, my family's supposed to be king or supposed to rule this country and gather an army to fight against them. And so they're supposed to wipe everybody out, but Saul says, please don't. When you become king, and what does the scripture say that David does? If you go back and you look, it's the last verse. This is now swear to me by the Lord that when this happens, you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. So David promised this to Saul with an oath. When you have the power to get even, do you? Or do you forgive? Or do you, see, forgiveness, forgiveness really happens. True forgiveness really happens when the tables have been turned and you now have the power in your hands. The power to inflict. The power to get even. The power to, to pay back. The power to hurt where you were hurt. And you choose not to. And you lay down that right to get even, even when you have the opportunity. See, David was going to become king. And he did become king. And when he was king, he honored this request. He was gracious and he was forgiven. Real strength is demonstrated when you're strong enough to be gracious and forgiving when you have the power to do otherwise. Colossians 3.13 says this. It says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Now read this next part with me. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Now, there's a key word in there. And what's that key word that's underlined? Must. He doesn't say, you might, or you should, or it's a good idea to. He says, this isn't an option, folks. You must forgive others. When we realize what God has done for us, the grace that we've shown, the love that He's demonstrated, there's no option. There's no option to hold unforgiveness in our lives. We must forgive. Must. I remember when I turned 16 and my dad handed me the keys to my car. It was a 1984 Chrysler LeBaron convertible. It was so janky that when I when to try to shut the door, you had to lift up to shut the door because it had like a sag in the middle of the car because it being a convertible. And I thought I was the man driving that thing. My dad told me, Jared, he, he had that talk with me, I'm sure all parents have with their kids, and says, I'm putting into your hands a deadly weapon. I mean, this 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 thing that I'm giving you, you now have the responsibility. You need to understand that you can take a life just like that. You don't understand 
how great a responsibility this is. You always need to be careful. You always need to be vigilant. You always need to, and he gave me that spiel. We talked for a long time. And I remember one Wednesday night, it had to be during the winter, um, because it was dark when I was leaving church. And, and I was driving home, and uh, I don't, decided to change the radio. And I was driving down this road, and, and I looked down, because I, I had one of those, you know, it was an old radio, so you had to turn the knob. It took forever to find that right, and I'm looking down like this while I'm trying to drive, and I look up just in time to see a car parked in the street in front of me, and I slammed on my brakes, and my car went, and I plowed into the back of this other car. It was parked in front of a church. So I got out of my car, and it was smashed in a little bit, and the other car was this old, like 1970s, like Buick Oldsmobile boat, you know, it's made out of steel and like not a scratch on it, right? There may have been a broken tail light, but I'm not even quite sure that had happened. It just mashed in my little plastic Chrysler LeBaron and this little boat, this boat, this tank was perfectly okay. And so I start looking around and don't see anybody around. And so I just get in my car and drive off, which is not the right thing to do if you're ever in a wreck. You don't leave the scene of the accident without doing anything. But I was 16 and I was afraid. And I drove home. It was just a couple miles from my house. And I walked into the front door. You know, kids, when you were, you know, when you were a teenager, and that first time you had to confess to something like this, just like sheet white, you know, afraid, terrified, terrified of what my dad's going to do. Because we had just had this talk like a month before. And he was like, what happened, son? He didn't even need to. I didn't even get started in the conversation. He's like, what's wrong? And I said, I was in a wreck, Dad. And the first thing that came out of his mouth was, is everybody okay? And I said, I think so. <laughs> He's like, what do you mean you think so? He's like, well, I didn't really stay along that, I didn't stay around that long, and I drove off. And he was like, you did what? He said, get in the car. And so we got into his car, and we drove to where the accident was. And... uh he looked around and the car was gone and and there was nothing there. I mean, it was very little glass. I mean, it just messed up my car, not his, the other car. And um, and he just put his arm around me. He's like, man, I'm glad you're okay, son. I'm glad nobody was hurt. And I, as I became an adult and I look back on that moment, there are many times my dad didn't get it right. <laughs> I mean, what dad gets it right every time, right? And um, there are many times, you know, he pushed those shame buttons and he really got on to me. But in this moment, he just showed a lot of restraint and a lot of wisdom. He just said, I'm so glad you're okay. And this is going to be fine. And we're going to take care of this. He had every opportunity to do everything else. I told you this was going to happen. You're always getting distracted. I've gotten on to you so many times for not looking at the road and doing this or doing that. But he didn't show me else. He showed grace and forgiveness. There's going to be a lot of times in our lives when people hurt us and we have the opportunity where we could have said, I told you so, or, or we could have hurt them because they hurt us. And the question is, is are you strong enough to be gracious and forgiving and gentle when you have the opportunity to get even? True forgiveness doesn't happen until we have the opportunity to pay back in our own hands and we choose to lay that down that right. So this morning we're looking at a manly man, but he was also gentle at heart. 
He was courageous to step up and lean, but he also knew when to submit to authority. He was wise enough to listen to other people, but he wasn't going to be manipulated by them. He embraced restraint, even when he had an opportunity to take matters into his own hands, and he was gracious and forgiving. The question I have for you this morning is, is, do you have that type of strength in your life? And I'm probably sure, like me, you have a few areas that you can work on. And this morning, as we close with a song, maybe it's just an opportunity for you and the Lord to have one of those one-on-one moments where you say, God, I need your help. My mouth says things that it probably shouldn't. God, help me be different. Show me how to restrain myself in a way that would honor you. Or, or maybe, God, I've been allowing other people to push my buttons and direct my life, and, and really the only opinion that counts is yours, Lord. And so, God, help me to listen to you and, and to allow you to direct my life. Or maybe you have a rebellious spirit, and it's time for you to learn how to submit to authority that God's placed into your life. Or maybe you have an opportunity to get even. And it's time to let that down and be gracious and forgiving. Lord, we just pray that as we sing this song, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. Lord, I know I'm not a perfect person. and There's places in my lives that this message challenged me and convicted me as I was writing it. And God, I just pray that your Spirit would work in my life as you work in all of our lives. We love you and we thank you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.